Welcome to the PPA Scotland Magazine Stories podcast. I am your host, Laura Kelly Dunlop. I'm a journalist and the business manager for PPA Scotland. For Magazine Stories, I interview some of the most interesting and brilliant people working in our industry. I discover anecdotes and advice that shine a light on the people who make your favourite magazines. It's a chance to learn from some of the best in the business. For the last podcast in this first series of magazine stories, I'm delighted to be joined by a woman who is a powerhouse of talent and someone I'm lucky to call a friend. Vicky Carroll is the managing editor of The Big Issue magazine, where she's worked for 12 years as part of an award-winning team. In this interview, she tells us about the profound impact that the magazine has had on her, as well as looking back on a career that includes groundbreaking work for the NME, managing major partnerships for the Evening Times, and lots and lots of live music. Thank you very much for joining me, Vicky. I'm recording online today. Um, before we begin our proper normal interview that we do for Magazine Stories, I want to take a moment to ask you about the big issue's response to the current coronavirus crisis. As a publication that's sold on the streets, um, you've been particularly hard hit. Uh, how have you changed what you're doing? Well, the changes have been uh, fairly radical, as you, you can imagine. Um, it, for us, it was uh, very much having to adapt incredibly quickly. And um, it's been a, a very steep learning curve. It's now uh, five weeks this week since we uh, started working from home to produce the magazine. Producing the magazine from home, is it's got its own challenges, but it's not impossible. We can certainly do that. But the day that the vendors were taken off the street, we found out on a Friday just after we'd sent the magazine to print for the following week. Um, mm-hmm. That was the weekend that the government announced that they were going to put homeless people into shelters. So they were going to take homeless people, rough sleepers, off the street. Um, so that happened all very, very quickly. Um, and our team uh, in London and our management team really put in a Herculean effort in order to find new ways for us to continue supporting vendors. Our distribution and outreach teams have been flat out keeping in touch with vendors um, mm-hmm. and the ways that we are now selling the magazine so that money is still coming in, that we can then push out to the vendors who've lost all of their income just straight away you know, just off the edge of a cliff. Um, it's, you know, it was a real shock to everyone. Um, so the way that we're doing that now is um, we, first of all, started pushing uh, subscriptions. So we introduced short-term three-month subscriptions in order to get us over this initial peak of what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. And that's available digitally and print ones, which is great when it comes through your door. I got mine this morning um, mm-hmm. and it's absolutely fab. It's very cheerful to see it arrive um, every week. And uh, the digital subscription, I have subscribed some of my family to that too. So we all get that uh, as well. And um We're also moved in for the first time in the 29 years history of the big issue. We've moved into supermarkets. So we are selling in shops, uh, newsagents in supermarkets. Um, Mm And it started off with RS McCall and Sainsbury's, then expanded to the co-op. And now it's expanded again just this week. In fact, today uh, we're on sale in Asda branches and WH Smith as well. So these are all completely alien uh, 
business models for us. Um, mm. And I just am in awe of the team and how everyone has pulled together and made this happen. So that the money that's coming in is now being distributed out to vendors. I'm keeping up with the uh, outreach teams in the front line who are talking to vendors every day. Um, some of the stories are just absolutely heartbreaking but there's also extraordinary support out there and the feedback we're getting from vendors about getting a call getting some help getting a food voucher help to keep their meters topped up things like that um is great and there's also fun things that we're doing to keep people's spirits up so this week we've sent out some art materials to a vendor who had used to draw and paint but hadn't done anything for a while uh, we've got some books someone used Brilliant. to do uh, there was a vendor down south that used to do crystal healing and they want to get back into doing that because I guess people are thinking a bit more spiritually and holistically and about what keeps us well so we've got some books ordered for them to to get back up to speed with that um, and another <laughs> I love this another vendor um We've set up a subscription to the Beano for them. Um, Brilliant. So uh, <laughs> that's to keep them. That's what I love to hear. <laughs> I know. Magazines celebrating other magazines. Exactly. <laughs> supporting someone else with a subscription. So the, there's these really positive stories, but make no mistake, it is incredibly hard. Our vendors, because our model is selling on the street, mm. our vendors... A huge part of the value of it beyond money is the connection they have in the communities that they sell in and their regular customers, and they're missing them like crazy. So, um, yeah, we really we're appreciating all the contact we're getting from customers to say, how are your vendors? How are they doing? And can you pass on a message to them for us? Which we're mm-hmm. getting quite a lot of that now, so that's good. And what so what um, can people do right now? What's the best thing that they can do to support the big issue and support the vendors if they want to do that? Well, there are three ways that people can support to ensure that we're able to financially support the vendors. What people can do is take out a subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be paper or digital. Uh, we also have an app now, which we launched just last week, in fact. Uh, so it's available uh, for Android and Apple. And we also uh, obviously are in the shops now. So if you're in a supermarket, um, we're in the magazine rack, which is very unusual to see and fantastic to see too. Um, so please pick up a copy if you're in RS McCall, WH Smith, Asda, Sainsbury's or the co-op and you see a copy. All of this comes back into a central pot and as I said we're interacting with vendors every day, finding out what they need and giving them some really life-saving support through this. So all of these ways to help are fantastic and just messages of support for vendors as well. On social media hit us up with any great messages and we'll pass them on. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to leave behind um, what's happening at the moment just for a little while. Um, I know that's quite hard to do right now, but um, we're going to go into the kind of our normal chat that we have um, for Magazine Stories, in which we're going to kind of take a look back through your career and and try and draw out some lessons along the way, hopefully. Um, So I want to go right back to the beginning to start with and ask you to tell me a little bit about how you got your start in the industry. Uh, well, basically, I wanted to write about bands. Um, I was a, a sad teenage little goth, as many people were in the 1980s. Less with the sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I was an incredibly cheerful little goth, to be honest. Um, uh, so, uh, yes, very crimped and too much eyeliner and all of that. Not that you can have too much eyeliner. And I mm. still stand by that today, as you know. Um, <laughs> so, yes, I was a, a huge fan of music and I wanted to know how it 
worked and just also um I loved poetry when I was younger um and a so poetry music arts generally it just it was such a rich part of life and I felt like I'd like to interpret that in some way for other people and um, so I used to write reviews of things Susie and the Banshees on the tube was the first uh, thing that I reviewed on tv on a, a Friday night um and I would write about records and things that I'd heard and I started to send those off to a journalist who I admired um she worked for channel four teletext at the time and she was evidently a big goth so I sent my reviews to her to get some uh, comments and feedback and she replied uh giving me some really useful advice actually um one of the pieces of advice that she gave me was if you want to uh, make money, don't go into journalism. But if you are passionate about a subject and you like to find out about things, then do. From there, decided to uh, the only way that I could get to do that for a living was to do proper journalism as well as music journalism. Um, because there was no such thing as just going to be a music journalist unless you were mm. of the high, you know, the real types that worked for the NME, which I definitely wasn't. I was just a suburban week off. Um, so I then applied to uh, Napier uh, Polytechnic, as it was at the time. Um, I didn't get in in my first year. And then I applied again the next year when I was in sixth year at high school and spending a bit more time writing and a bit more time thinking. Uh, and I got in that year and uh, went off to Napier Polytechnic with my portable typewriter when I was 17. Two years, yeah. it was very much hands-on. So like in your first week, you had also a little crap tape recorder thing. It was like a little box and a strap over your shoulder. You were sent out to go and do Vox Pop. I'm going out onto a street corner to ask people questions. God, it was terrifying and horrible and it still remains, I maintain, it's one of the best ways for journalists to, one, get over yourself and to confront any qualms you have about speaking to people because the only way you can do journalism is speaking to people um, and get an actual practical experience. So the practical experience at Napier was great. Learning shorthand was fantastic. And uh, as you know, I still do my shorthand rather than record things whenever I can. I'll probably repeat this, but just doing the job is the best thing you can do to get on and learn how to do it. You then went and did what quite a lot of people do, which is go and uh, work on a local weekly newspaper mm -hmm. um, or a couple of local <laughs> weekly newspapers, I should say. Um, was that similar lessons that you took from there or was it different once you were kind of out in the wild, as it were? I started working at the Border Telegraph 30 years ago this month um, and it was incredibly different. Going out as a young journalist, um, first of all, you quite quickly realise on a local newspaper especially the responsibility that you have to report accurately and mm. the responsibility you have to your readership in order to represent them. So I think that, that you get a sense of your responsibilities quite quickly. And also, if you've written something about someone that you got wrong, they will come in and chap on the door of the office and you will have to yeah. talk to them. So yeah. there's no hiding behind emails at that time. There were no emails at that time. We had no internet. Everything was going out and asking questions. I think anything that you think at the time, oh, God, this is so hard. I hate this. Oh, why am I doing this? Actually, those are the things that you will realise have built up the 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 skills and the muscles and the strengths that you will have later on in your career. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, you then, when you moved on to your, your next job afterwards, you were also kind of commissioning other writers and things like that as well. Um, I, I kind of wonder what, how you find that shift. Again, throwing in right at the deep end with that. So when I moved to the Hoyk News newspaper, which was actually a smaller newspaper and very old fashioned, the, the modern gleaming metropolis of Galish Eels compared to Hoyk, where I lived, um, Hoyk was very old fashioned by comparison. So going to the Hoyt News was going to an institution there. Um, I think it might have been the first female journalist they ever had, and they'd been going for about 120 years at that point. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm fairly certain that I was some kind of pioneer there. And that in itself wasn't easy. You know, you'd go to to community council meetings and stuff, and you would be this wee lassie that they would pat on the head. You know, it was... there was a bit of a struggle there but at the same time they also brought me in it's actually the editor's son-in-law who employed me and part of that was in order to start up a supplement and I still got mm-hmm. some copies of it actually so it was um uh, this uh, A4 uh, oh no in fact it was A3 supplement um on thicker nice. thicker paper <laughs> um and they said uh, we want an arts and entertainment thing which was partly also to drive a bit of advertising but commissioning, so I was given pretty free reign to come up with who I wanted to write about things. And it was a great experience. Um, I employed a couple of my friends and I discovered that, well, I, I say employed, I don't know that we paid them very much, if at all. <laughs> um, but I remember uh, one of my friends, uh, who was a big Kate Bush fan, writing something about Kate Bush for us and kind of having to change it. And the horror of having to change copy by your friends is again it's very confidence building Uh Um, but it's commissioning is you have to really toughen up and you don't have to be an absolute cow about it you know you don't have to be to be bad to people I think there are ways that you can um work with people rather than just saying this is rubbish do it again uh, the worst mm. editors I've ever worked for are the ones who go, this is rubbish, do it again, do it better, but don't ever explain to you what isn't right about it. And sometimes, mm. again, with hindsight and experience now, I can see the editors who didn't really know themselves why it wasn't what they wanted. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's why they didn't explain to you sometimes. Um, I would say, I mean, if if there's any um, thing that I learned from that... Uh, and again this is right through my whole career still now even if you don't understand why you're being asked to do it again have a conversation and don't just go off in a huff which is easy to do and I've done it hundreds of times and I still do it now I'm not writing that again it was brilliant how dare you (laughs) (laughs) and maybe it was brilliant but maybe it wasn't the right thing that actually was needed you know (laughs) that's a nice way of putting it um so yeah (laughs) But yes, it's it's a completely different skill set, commissioning. But I think also if you have the empathy of someone who has been a writer, um, that I think helps you to perhaps understand your coming. You can understand the perspective of the person you're talking to. Um, yeah. Although in, you know, when you're in a fast-paced environment, it, it you don't always have time to to dissect things. But I think for any journalist, especially younger journalists starting out, if you can then go back and afterwards after deadline it's all gone everything's done and it's fine make time to go back and say what could I have done differently could you take a look at the copy again and can we just sit down and go through it 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing to- that sense of a postmortem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, also, I think it, it alleviates any stress and tension and bad feeling that might have been there because that's quite easy to to creep in. And mm-hmm. there's nothing worse than knowing you've asked someone to rewrite some copy and they've taken it quite badly and they're resenting it. And it happens. It totally does. But um, I would always rather people speak to me about it as well. Yeah, definitely. So after Hoik News, you you headed off to the Sunday Mail. Um, did it feel like a career jump to get you know the call onto a national? <laughs> yes, very much so. Absolutely. I mean, I went from a newspaper that had a circulation of I think something like four and a half thousand a week uh, to the Sunday Mail, which also weekly. But at that time, did we have something like three quarters of a million? <laughs> Wow, yeah, so that was a numbers. huge leap. Um, at the time, it was actually sort of forced upon me because they, um, there were some issues with um, staffing. I think I wasn't that popular at the Hoyke News with the editor. Now, one of the things that we did on local newspapers, again, this is good experience, was if you had a good story, you could sell it on to big newspapers so you would you'd contact mm. the sun or the daily record or the sunday mail you could just you know phone them up and say i've got this are you interested in it and they would give you a tip off fee for it yeah yeah, yeah. and so it's a bit of, you know it's a way of making a wee bit more money as well but also just contacts and stuff so i had one feature that i had done for the hoik news which was about uh uh, rugby player, obviously Hoyk is a very big rugby town in the Scottish borders. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a local rugby player, player who had written a book of poetry, um, self-published it, but it was kind of cute. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's quite nice. So I phoned up the features editor at the Sunday Mail, which again was one of those quite nerve wracking things to do at the time. Couldn't just send an email. You had to phone and speak to a human. Um, and he got me to fax through uh, an outline of the story. But what he said was, how would you illustrate this? Um, and I had an idea for you'd get him, you know, pro- proclaiming his poetry from underneath the goal, you know, rugby goalposts yeah. on the pitch sort of thing in his kit. Um, something like that. And I sent this up to the features editor, Rob Bruce, at the Sunday Mail. And he phoned up and said would I be interested in coming for a chat with them so I went up to Glasgow in my big shoulder pads because this was the the 1990s and I went up trying to be all big grown-up journalist and had a meeting they took me out for lunch which was just like gosh proper posh restaurants and everything and uh, then they had me in for a second interview and offered me a job as a features writer on the Sunday Mail magazine. What were some of the most fun things that you, you did while you were there? Because I, I mean, I know that you did do you'd, uh, some pretty good interviews and um, you know, some good <laughs> some good times while you were there. Well, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess being at the Sunday Mail, we, I, there was actually... You know, thinking about it, being at the Sunday Mail, there was a lot of opportunity. While I was there, uh, I was very fortunate in that the uh, music writer um, who did the music column for the magazine unexpectedly left. And so knowing that I loved music, went to a lot of gigs and stuff, I was asked if I'd like to step in for a bit. And uh, the the first piece that I did, fortunately... 
um, there was a, an up and coming Edinburgh band who were on the V2 record label, who which was a, a sort of offshoot, I think it was a Branson thing or something at the time. And uh, this up and coming Edinburgh band were being given a big push by their label. Um, they had been on the Chris Evans TFI Friday things mm-hmm. so they were rising just at the time when a Scottish tabloid newspaper wants to be in with bands like that it was a band called Annie Christian um and they oh, had, yep, yeah, yep. Uh, they had a lot of the, the kind of influences so it was like uh the cure uh Depeche Mode um mm. Prince obviously um so they had a lot of these kind of influences and they were a great band I mean at that point I used to go and see them live all the time they were just terrific so it was great to be able to write about a band that I really you know really really liked as well mm-hmm. um so yes I did them but <laughs> the other bands the other sort of interviews that I got to do um Susie Sue, having written my first ever live review, watching the Banshees on the tube, uh, getting to interview Susie by phone was one of the most nerve-wracking because you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of your heroes, you know. Yeah. Gosh, she was fantastic. She was everything you'd hope. And um, the other great one that I really enjoyed doing was Julian Cope. And I was on the mm. phone to Julian Cope. It was at the time that his modern antiquarian book about standing stones came out. I later became interested in archaeology because of that book, but at that time I wasn't. And I ended up on the phone to Julian Cope for so long. I used both sides of a cassette recording it and <laughs> ran out of notebook as well. <laughs> oh, what a treat that was as well. And then obviously in 2000, with all of that under your belt, you did nab a job that would be a dream for pretty much any music writer, um, certainly at that time, um, in that you got a job at the NMA it must have been quite a moment <laughs> yes <laughs> um again it was one of those uh, situations where it was it was kind of bleak we had a change of editor um a change of all the senior staff actually at the Sunday Mail at that time happened quite suddenly out of the blue in the music column and stuff like that they wanted it to be much more written about Westlife type of bands which just wasn't obviously me at all Um, so they brought in another music writer and I could tell you can just tell your days are probably numbered the NME advertised for some uh, news reporters for the NME.com website so they were growing NME.com at that time and were staffing up hugely and they wanted to bring in some uh, additional reporters so I applied for the journalist job went down uh, for the interview um and uh, got on really well with Steve Sutherland, who was editing at the time, mm-hmm. um, and Anthony Thornton, who was the uh, .com editor. And I uh, went away and uh, they got in touch after the interview to say, well, we're actually looking for a news editor for the .com website and are you interested? Moving down to London wasn't really something that had been in my radar, but being offered a job like that, which incorporated news and music. And it's the NME, I mean, come on. So that was just, uh, that was an unbelievable piece of luck, really. And was it as decadent, as exciting as it seemed from, I mean, because I would have been, you know, I would have been in Belfast reading the NME at that time. And I know it seemed like it was like, you know, the absolute most exciting place to be in the world. (laughs) Um. It's kind of funny. I probably, you know, if I'm completely honest, I probably would rather have been working for the NME about 15 years earlier than that. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> you know, every day in the office, the bands 
the things that were played in the office a lot were things like Queens of the Stone Age. Um, the strokes were really rising at that time. Mm. And around about that time, those kind of, you know, the libertines were starting to come up and stuff like that. So um, there was quite a, the, the editor that came in uh, behind Steve Sutherland, uh, Connor McNicholas, was a, a fan of a band called Cooper Temple Claws. Mm. I can remember getting sent out to Radio 1 to sit in in an interview with them and just thinking, oh, I can't really be arsed with this. <laughs> but there was so much fun. I mean, it, it, and the team that I was working with, um, who included Paul McNamee, who is obviously now editor of The Big Issue and who I've worked with at The Big Issue for 12 years now. Um, so the team was just fantastic. Um, for me, it was quite a step up. So being a news editor um, and managing a small group of news journalists and then being part of this much bigger dot-com team where there was a hip-hop editor, a soul editor, a dance editor, all of these things, which are also quite alien to NME. So there was some tension between the old-school NME journalist guys, you know, the inky print mm. proper music journal types, and the dot-com people who were all a bit younger and kind of had all these specialisms. It's an amazing pool of talent and knowledge that they had there. And we'd get sent out to music festivals. So 2000, 2001, the summers were uh, outrageously good fun. Um, you know, there was quite a lot of drinking and, you know, you're sitting in a porta cabin. We were one of the first, actually. NME.com at that time was one of the first to go to festivals and report live and upload and internet speeds were crap at that time mm -hmm. doing it in a field how much worse that was you, you didn't have mobile you didn't have smartphones so we had laptops set up we had production guys with us we were running around doing video interviews with bands so if you spotted you know someone wandering about backstage you would go and get them speak to them on video camera bring that back um, sit and type up your interview, put it up online as a little news story, they've said this, and then the video would go up at the end of that day. We were turning stuff around so, so quickly. And also, you know, drinking quite a lot at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was just magic. It was, it was just the best fun. And there was adrenaline the whole time. You were working hard and you were working late as well. You know, so if there was a, a band on the main stage at Glastonbury, you would have to be sitting there, there'd be a couple of you sat, somebody writing it, and then hopefully somebody checking their spelling mistakes yeah. um, and putting it up online straight away after. And we were really among the first to be doing that. It's second nature now, everyone takes it for granted now, but we were really pioneering that. And I'm really proud to have been part of that. Mm, yeah, it it didn't have the happiest ending, your time at Enemy, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, we talked about the big highs there, but it wasn't yeah. maybe the happiest ending. Well, it's interesting, actually, just as I'm talking about this, that there seems to be a kind of pattern of, you know, being forced into a position of having to change. Um, and yeah. at NME, it was really forced in, in a very uh, abrupt way. Melody Maker had been closed down mm. Um just previous to that IPC I think was taken over I think it was EOL Time Warner that took us over at that point um and um so IPC was contracting in and basically at NME what happened was that the dot com was the staff were just well made redundant on mass one morning yeah um, so we were taken in and uh, the people who were 
going to not be coming back in went into that room and the people whose jobs were okay went into that room it was absolutely horrible and this is something that now is just all too familiar to people um Mm. but at that time was still quite a a surprise and a shock um within the, the 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 media industry i mean it's just having watched that decline um and so many redundancies and rounds of redundancies at different publications across the industry. It's I, I really have a you know real understanding of how people feel when it happens. At that point, I thought, right, I'm going home. I'm just I'm going back to Scotland. I'm ready to go up the road. I'm quite tired now. Mm. <laughs> I've had a lot of late nights. I'm quite tired. I'm ready to go home to Scotland. Plus, also I knew that there was 15 other journalists from the dot com who were going to be out looking for work. Yeah. Um, a few, you know, it was interesting that day. There was a pub that we all went to next door, and we sat there in shock, really drinking a lot. And uh, people were going out on their mobiles, and you could see the people that were setting up work, you know, setting up jobs. Um, one of my friends who works uh, in uh, television uh, gave me a tip off about a, a Robbie Williams thing. Robbie was going to be appearing in some TV drama thing. Um, so I managed to sell that to the Daily Record and that was me basically on the, the way to coming back up the road. But I went down to, it was just, it was, in fact, gosh, was that the Monday or the Tuesday? And it was Reading Festival the next weekend. And I went down to Reading Festival because I thought, well, one, I'm coming into work. I might as well come into work. I'll get in touch with all my contacts. I'll start to build whatever I can to go home with. Yeah, and, and start freelancing and start doing that. So it was kind of a weird sort of instinctive reaction. But yeah, I went down to Reading. So it was good because you've got all of the PRs of London in one place. I managed to tell them all that I was going back up to Scotland. If you've got anything, bring it to me, you know, mm. um, stuff like that. In loads of ways, it was shocking and abrupt end to working at NME, but also it was kind of positive as well, all these things. You know, the, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think there is something in that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you did really well as a freelancer up here. You you were, you know, it wasn't a a quiet time for you. Yeah, it's really weird. I I did put myself about a bit. Um, I managed to get a combination of shifts. I mean, moving into freelancing, I think I just ran into it headlong, to be honest. Um, I made meetings with features editors and arts editors, took in my portfolio, obviously coming up from London, and having worked at NME, they knew you could just kind of step in and start. You you, you hit the ground running. So I got shifts. Um, I got a, a regular gig, which is actually, this is the most useful thing as a freelancer, if you can get some kind of regular income. Um, so mm. I was on a, a retainer for carlinglive.com. So I wrote some news for them and features for them and interviews and stuff. So that was like my regular gig. Um, did some stuff for the list, uh, the Sunday Herald. Oh, just basically everyone up here, Edinburgh festivals time would be a busy time. You'd get loads of work for that. I did the mm. Rite of Passage that everyone in Scotland does um, doing the uh, list eating and drinking guide reviews, which yeah. seems brilliant, loads of free food, but actually, God, it's a nightmare when you do it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there is literally only so much pasta that you can eat, it turns out. <laughs> um, uh, yeah so it was it was good and it was varied and that summer the first summer that was freelancing it, I was staying with a friend so I was renting a, a room um, in a flat and my friend managed bands uh, at the time 
and she was like out at gigs all the time I was out at gigs all the time with her and just you know some nights I'd go and be out at three gigs a night and it was a beautiful summer so I could spend all day kicking about in pubs and then go home and do all my writing do the interviews written up it was perfect it was really really enjoyable actually and so again it was something quite horrible it turned out all right and the contacts that you make and the experience you get and the toughness that you sort of develop from that stands you in good stead as well then the evening times obviously managed to tempt you back I mean it sounds (laughs) it sounds like it must have been a hard job to tempt you back into full-time employment yeah that was um they didn't have to tempt me back so much I think I I suddenly uh, grew up and I had been doing some shifts at the evening times in the features desk um and I went in as a full-time features writer and again, <laughs> one of those weird coincidences, the music writer left suddenly. It's not me, honestly. I don't bump them off or anything. <laughs> uh, so they needed someone to step in at short notice again, um, which I did. And I ended up doing the music column for years, which is great fun as well. At the Evening Times, uh, we ended up at that point had really successful commercial partnerships with the Great Scottish Run in Glasgow. Um, and with Celtic Connections and mm-hmm. those were fantastic to work on again you get a completely different perspective on balancing brilliant creative content that's got the tone of your publication in it but also fulfills a commercial requirement by your partner um, and those were great skills to learn um, we also at that time we, we kind of were trying to do things like um, one of the production journalists was into digital things which again was still just growing at the time and we tried doing like podcasts and stuff so Mm. interviewing people uh, at Celtic Connections um, and doing video interviews as well one of the photographers loved doing video stuff so we did some video interviews so it it really enjoyable and I think that the the commercial partners felt they got a lot out of it because they had someone Mm. they had an enthusiastic team of creative people on the publication working with them and for them and going above and beyond it wasn't like I just chuck out a 24 page supplement it was what else can we do and it was Mm -hmm. fun you know it was it was really fulfilling actually in 2008 then then you joined the the big issue which of course was uh brilliant for me because you became my deputy editor at that point (laughs) (laughs) and it was brilliant for me because we sat across from each other Yeah, exactly. And talked over the top of our computers at each other. (laughs) But um, I mean, I I guess a a thing I wouldn't have asked you at the time um, is what attracted you to the magazine? It it was really, I mean, I have to say, uh, this is odd to reflect on this. And that's, yeah, 2008. So that's 12 years I've been there. And at the time, I didn't think so much about the social mission of the big issue. I didn't want to save homeless people. That wasn't why I wanted to come. The reason I wanted to come and work at the big issue was solely because Paul McNamee was editor at the time. Mm. And having worked with Paul, having seen how he grew through the ranks in the NME, having seen just what a, a strong opinionated, as we all know, mm-hmm. um, but really a visionary editor he would be. Mm. And I could see his ambition how to grow the big issue. It was a big issue in Scotland, obviously, at the time. Mm-hmm. And he just, he was this cauldron of ambition and vision and fearlessness and daring. Mm-hmm. And I mean, 
I think we can tell from the conversation we've had at the beginning of, of this podcast that the social purpose has certainly got under your skin in the time that you've been there. Um, how does it now change how you view your job? It's amazing how it changes. I, I've been thinking about this and trying to identify if there was a point where there was a tipping point where it wasn't about the professional job that you're doing and it was more about the people you're doing it for. I still haven't quite worked out if there was a moment or if it's mm. just something that happened gradually. But you absolutely, it, it's impossible to work at the big issue for any length of time and not see that you're not, your shareholders are the vendors. They're the people you're making money for. You really do realise that you've got to do everything, 100% everything, the best that you absolutely can make it the best magazine that have the best headlines, the best captions, the best pictures, the best design, the best words, the greatest interviews. You've got to do that because this has got to be the absolute best for the people who are selling it. And these times, the coronavirus crisis has just made us reappraise the magazine, made us look at how we're filling it. We've we've cut back our budgets. We've really reduced how we're spending and everybody's working way above and beyond. It's incredible. Um, and that's so that we can keep it going so that in a few months' time, and hopefully not too many months' time, mm-hmm. our vendors will be back there standing, holding the magazine. And I think that people will, I think the public in Britain might actually look at the magazine slightly differently as well as hopefully look at the vendors differently too. Yeah, absolutely. And it is interesting because I think, um, I mean, I had quite a similar experience in that I came into the big issue because it was a really cool magazine mm-hmm. and one of the coolest magazines to work in in Scotland. And then it transforms you and you never will be the same person again. Anyone who's ever worked for the big issue will never be the same person again. It's impossible because you have the great privilege of having met so many people who have been through so much awful things in their lives and have come out the other side. And I think that's that's profoundly transformative. It absolutely is. And I think as well as being profoundly transformative in a personal level, I think the magazine has been professionally transformative. I remember there was a time when it seemed like almost every journalist on the Sunday Herald had come through the big issue at some yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. And it's a great, it's always been a great um, learning ground for people to to push themselves because it's a magazine that has to fight harder. We have mm. to fight harder. And, you know, it's produced some fantastic journalists and I would include you in that, Laura, obviously as well, because you've, you know, you learned so much and when you moved on from the big issue, you took a, a great skill set that you had learned over the years and you made the job your own when you were there too, I think. Well, I was very lucky to work with some pretty great people, as you, <laughs> you, you and Paul especially over the years and, and many other people before that as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, you did mention there, sorry, that the, the big issue has been a, a good springboard uh, for people starting out in their careers and a kind of starting ground for some of the best journalists in Scotland. You now have a role in which you're mentoring many of them. Um, so I'm wondering what you think the kind of key attributes or skills that um, you see in people that you think they're going places? I think the attributes are that you have to... Gosh, it's so easy to say you have to, isn't it? Um, (laughs) But I think that what people have is uh, you can see the mind working, you can see them thinking, 
and if you're speaking to someone, even if they're quite quiet, perhaps, and they'd be a wee bit reticent, as most people are when they come in at the beginning, mm. because they're checking the lie of the land and stuff. None of them are reticent now, by the way. <laughs> but, um, they, when they come in and a bit quiet, you can see that they're thinking there's a, a self-motivation as well. So an ability to get on the phone, don't hide behind the email, speak mm. to people. And see if someone comes in with that understanding that it's talking to people that will get you the thing that you need to make great content. That's what will do it. Um, so that understanding, if someone comes in with that inbuilt into them, then they're halfway there. And also an understanding that just not getting the job done, that's not an option. You have to do it. You have mm -hmm. to do something. And if it gets to the end of the week, you're right on deadline and it just hasn't been possible. You've tried your hardest. You've tried every option. You've tried every alternative and you've presented the backup. Then that's really great as well. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really want to finish, well, I, I'll ask you a couple more questions, but mm -hmm. um, about for your own stuff, I really want to finally ask you what the best thing is about working in magazines. I like to finish on a high. <laughs> I think the best thing about working in magazines is, this is going to sound corny, but it's the team that you're working with. So it's it, a print magazine is a product that is a piece of art in itself. The way that it looks, the way that it navigates, it's not just words, it's how the, the, the images are on the page, it's the colours that are used. And when you work with great designers, as I've been very lucky to at The Big Issue, you see how that translates. And it's a bit of copy on a Word document and then you see the magazine in itself and it's this, it is magazines are a work of art mm. and it brings in all these different disciplines artistic and creative disciplines into it and it creates an object that you can carry anywhere with you and so finally I'm going to ask you about a kind of a looking forward to the future kind of thing I know that's really hard right now but after this disruption passes I am um, I'd really like you to kind of look into your crystal ball and tell us what's on your radar for the the future of of kind of magazines more generally I think that the future for magazines, if we survive and if we have enough advertisers, I think that people will look at content from a more human perspective. I think hopefully we'll all come out of this with a bit more humanity, mm. maybe a bit more humility, um, placing value on things that aren't... I mean, we, all, we will always need shiny stuff. We will always need to look at gorgeous things in magazines, but also thinking a bit more widely. We've all had a chance to pause and look at the world around us and see what's important. And I, I genuinely believe that that will filter through editorially into the magazines that continue. Really having humanity and heart and just thinking creatively are the things that will, will hopefully take us into a different future for magazines. Thank you for joining us for this edition of PPA Scotland Magazine Stories. This is the last in this first series of the podcast. If you haven't yet caught the rest of the episodes, there are five other great interviews available right now with lots more entertaining stories and useful tips. If you enjoyed listening today, please do subscribe at your podcast provider of choice. And we'd love it if you could leave us a review. Those star ratings on Apple really mean a lot to us. We're taking a short break for now from the podcast, but I will be back in the summer with series two. I hope you'll join me then. I have been Laura Kelly Dunlop, and this has been PPI Scotland Magazine Stories. <laughs>